0: Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next
2: favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad.
3: Welcome. Welcome to Syndicate. My name is Armand, and joining me in the studio today is Aaron. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You may know Aaron from WSTR, Galactic yes. Public Access. Yes, Armand was a,
1: uh, a co-host on that for quite some time. Yes. Um, and we're still going strong. We've been going weekly for just over three years now. It's a Star Wars podcast, for those who don't know. Uh, we try to keep it a positive podcast podcast. That doesn't mean we're not critical of the movies or Disney or whatever, but we try to keep it light and fun and entertaining. So we we have a lot of fun there available wherever podcasts are
3: available. WSTR, Galactic Public Access. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me with this new endeavor. So today we watched Fright Night from 1985. Yes, we did. Now, Aaron, before we get into the plot and the themes and the characters... Have you ever watched a horror movie before? Fright Night or was this your first outing with horror? I've watched many horror movies. I
1: would I would not consider myself an enthusiast by any stretch of the imagination, but they do have a special place in my heart. Really? Yes, I very much enjoyed the first few Friday the 13th movies, first few Nightmare on Elm Street films, basically that classic horror era, which Fright Night finds itself perfectly in the middle of. Because of that, I had a lot of appreciation for this film. Yeah, I was no stranger to horror movies when I watched this one.
3: Yeah, for me, because this was your first time watching Fright Night, right? Yes. Yeah, I recently discovered Fright Night too because I came from your boat too, which is I love those slasher movies from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, growing up, my friends and I like watched almost all of those movies. And for some reason, we didn't get to Fright Night. I don't know why this flew under my radar, but I definitely missed it growing up. But I had the chance to watch this movie in theaters. Really? Yes. Was it Music Box? No, it was not Music Box. It was a horror movie convention hosted by Bruce Campbell.
1: That's amazing.
3: For those that don't know, Bruce Campbell was famously known for his role in The Evil Dead. Yes, Ash Williams. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a 30th anniversary screening for Fright Night, and the director, um, Tom Holland, was there. Excellent. Old man Tom Holland. (laughs) So, yeah, that's how I. Yeah, not Spider Man Tom Holland. No, unless it's Time Traveler Tom Holland (laughs) that went back in time to make these horror movies, which would be insane. It's 2020. Anything's possible. All I'm saying is you don't see them in the same room together, Tom Holland and Tom Holland. (laughs) But anyways, this was definitely a recent discovery for me, and I absolutely love this movie. Um, Like you said, it sits perfectly in that classic horror movie genre. Yes, and what I was surprised about it
1: was learning that it was indeed Tom Holland who... Both wrote and directed because yeah. I was first turned on to him after watching Child's Play and mm, learning okay. that he wrote it.
3: Yes. And so. And directed.
1: Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. I, I believe it was after Fright Night, but yes. um, prior to that, he had written Psycho 2 and essentially uh, earned him the, the chutzpah to <laughs> write and direct uh, Fright Night.
3: Yeah, Fright Night was Tom Holland's like first directorial endeavor that he did, and after Fright Night, he did Child's Play. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used the actor that played Jerry the vampire, uh, Chris yes. Sarandon. Yes. Yeah. He... Most famously known as uh, Prince Humperdinck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> For the, I was watching this movie. and I'm like, where do I know
3: this guy? Yeah, he has that face. And uh, yeah, and Princess Bride, Prince Humperdinck. <laughs> so now. Let's really get into Fright Night. Yes. And we, we were beating around the bush talking about the actors, directors. <laughs> so since this was your first endeavor with the Fright Night, something we'd like to do on Syndicate is 60-second elevator pitch. So you know when you're recommending a movie mm-hmm. to somebody and you don't really have a lot of time to really say the whole movie? Mm-hmm. Pitch me the movie, the entire plot of the movie, within 60 seconds. In five, four, three, two, one. Okay, so I want you to imagine a classic horror film
1: uh, that is bringing the vampire mythos to the modern era. Uh, You have uh, have a boy next door dating a girl next door, uh, and actually next door moves into mysterious strangers who the boy next door uh, discovers are actually vampires. But He tries to warn his friends, his family. Nobody believes him. Um, He goes to to the police. He's laughed off. And he even goes to one of his heroes, a washed-up actor on a horror show uh, who plays a vampire killer. He doesn't believe him. But eventually, he wins their support and their aid to uh, do battle against these vampires. And um, ultimately, he has to save the day, save the
3: girl, save the world. Wow, and you finished up with four <laughs> seconds to spare. That's, That's insane. how I do it. Yeah, I mean, you summed it up. It's obvious that it's written
1: and directed by the same person, or I would say directed with the writing in mind, because there's a lot of subtext that isn't really obvious. But when you look into it, it gives a, a deeper, richer meaning to the movie beyond just trying to set up some scares. And we can get into that
3: if you want, but maybe we should describe the plot a bit first. Sure. Uh, so we have some jumping off points. So... The movie opens with a, a nice, quiet suburban town, and the camera pans into a house, and you think it's a conversation between two people, but it's actually the television. Yes. And the camera pans over to an empty bed, and it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, who's watching the TV? So then the camera pans even further, and there's this couple on the ground making out. Mm-hmm. And that couple is uh, Charlie Brewster Yes, and Amy.
1: Yeah, so it, it's actually, this scene is setting up a lot of the themes that are going to be played out throughout the rest of the movie. We have a young couple, Charlie and Amy, and according to Charlie, they've been dating for a year, but they haven't gone all the way in their physical relationship. He's pushing for it, and she's very reluctant, and they have an argument about this in front of the TV set. And by the way, the TV show is showing this horror anthology TV series called Fright Night Mm -hmm. that's where the name of the movie comes from and it stars a character by the name of Peter Vincent who's a vampire killer so <laughs> let's set that aside for a bit. So they're having this argument. He wants to fulfill their sexual relationship and she's not quite ready. They argue back and forth and she then tells Charlie, you know, she's ready to move into that stage and starts preparing. So on the bed, it's interesting that they're making out off the bed, kind of behind it on the floor hidden. Yeah. I believe it's setting up that there's a young couple in love. They're in high school. Amy is on the cusp of womanhood. And kind of the initiation into that stage is, of course, her first sexual experience. Yeah. And she's demonstrating that she's ready to do that. But... Charlie is distracted. He looks out his window and sees two men carrying a coffin into the cellar. So he kind of blows off the argument with Amy, and he's trying to figure out what's going on, and he takes binoculars. Military-grade binoculars. Yes, military-grade Bushnell binoculars, which he just has for some reason. As every teenager would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the 80s, man. Yeah, he's kind of doing a, a, a peeping Tom on them, and that really piques his interest. The house next door had been for sale for an unspecified
3: amount of time but then it seems people are moving in and so she gets mad storms off downstairs and they argue down there his mom overhears and she's like oh are you guys having a a lover's spat (laughs) yes she it's
1: it's very much midwestern nice yeah i was trying to figure out like where this movie is supposed to take place and i knew it was somewhere in the midwest but with the accents and everything i couldn't quite place it we learn later it's iowa you know kind of middle america kind of
3: suburb so after that scene the movie really gets going because pretty much all these beautiful women are being lured into this house that's being renovated by these two men yes and charlie brewster is trying to figure out what exactly is going on yeah and he hears about the murders and the bodies are found
1: dumped at different abandoned locations and beheaded so very unusual and it's Uh one after the other and one of them is this beautiful woman that he spots the day before uh, who is looking for that particular house. turns out she was a prostitute. And there's another woman that he actually spots through the window. Yeah. she's She is disrobing. Mm-hmm. And the neighbor, who we later learn is named Jerry, Chris Sarandon's character, is seducing her. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Okay. Uh, just because of cinematography and music working together, it's extremely sinister. Mm-hmm. And this feeds into... One of the main themes of the movie, this kind of theme of sexual predation. And so we get these shots back and forth of Charlie spying on the activity taking place. And Chris spots Charlie spying in on them. And there's this very tense kind of exchange of eye contact between them. And then Jerry moves closer to the window and starts very slowly lowering the drape of it. And and we see that he has like these long, sharp fingernails. It's implied that he's about to do something very violent. (laughs) So that that was one of my favorite scenes. I just felt very uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. it was very sinister. And that will feed into
3: later events in the movie. It perfectly sets up the movie's villain. And you really understand the stakes at that point where you have this monster living next door to you. And it's like, what do you do? And so Charlie Brewster does, you know, the logical thing and he brings a a detective over and who does he encounter when they get to the door? His name is Billy.
1: He is uh, Jerry's right-hand man. Uh-huh, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the middle of the AIDS crisis. You have two strange men moving in next door. Yep. I feel that also feeds into the sexual predation theme of this kind of suspicious homosexual couple. Later, we find out it's more of a vampire-servant relationship yeah, rather than a strictly sexual one. But regardless, they meet Billy and... The detective starts interrogating him about what's going on in the house. What have you been doing? And Charlie, kind of exasperated, starts accusing him of having a coffin in his basement. And um, and he's sounding more and more ridiculous as he goes. He oh does, yeah, he doesn't really handle it well.
3: No, he doesn't. He's trying to get the guy arrested or have the vampire known. But you know, if you're gonna seem sensible. You don't say the word vampire, which he does. <laughs> which He's he like, does. He was like, you know what? There's a vampire in the basement. <laughs> He's sleeping in the, the sleep of the dead right now. Yeah. And the cop is like, you have got to be kidding me. I do appreciate
1: the acting work um, by the actor who plays Billy in the scene. Because I believe in the script it was written straight, but he totally plays it up comedically. Oh, yeah. And it really comes across as just belittling Charlie and making him out to be a fool and it works. Really does.
3: Speaking of that, I really enjoy the the humor undertones throughout yes. the entire movie. Like it's a funny movie, but it's not a comedy. It mm-hmm. still takes itself seriously. Yeah. You have this threat of the vampire, but it doesn't get too hammy with it. It doesn't.
1: It really saves the comedy for later in the movie. Yeah. But it pretty much for the first half plays it straight and really takes this threat seriously. I think particularly stuff like this works really well once you set the groundwork that it is serious, and so you have this contrast between the serious threat and these moments of levity and comedy, and that just makes both of them work more, in my opinion. It really does. You know, this is back in the 80s. There's not going to be, like, Marvel quips and, Mm -hmm. you know, cracking jokes left and right, but there are moments like that when it happens. I'm thinking of Charlie's friend, Ed. Oh, Ed. Um, Evil Ed. Evil Ed. Charlie is desperate, wanting to know, you know, how do you fight a vampire? And he pays Ed to tell him. Ed says, uh, well, who am I to turn down a fool's money? Exactly.
3: (laughs) They have a very weird relationship. Like, Charlie Brewster is very, you know, the lovable schmuck. Yeah. Like the everyday guy. Yeah. And then uh, Evil Ed looks like Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) (laughs) He does. He acts like Beavis and Butthead. He's very strange. It's this very weird guy. He's the one who
1: doesn't quite fit in. And so concerned about this growing vampire problem, Charlie goes to his friend and says, you've read up on this kind of thing. How do you deal with a vampire problem? And Ed blows him off, thinks he's pulling his leg. But eventually Charlie pays him like eight bucks or whatever to say that was a lot of money in 1985 yeah that was that was beer money for a week (laughs) and so it tells them you have to show them a cross to ward them away but you need to have complete
3: faith in it in order for it to work Mm -hmm. uh you need to stab them through a heart with a wooden stake yes so pretty much like they maintain the classic rules of vampires Mm -hmm. like you said stick through the hearts cross the basics and they can't travel in sunlight yeah none of this uh like Twilight, reimagining stuff (laughs) it's just the classic dracula rules yes they're bringing the classic vampire mythos into the modern day yeah and given the context of when this movie came out in the mid 80s before that they had the hammer films yes which were the classic dracula frankenstein Mm -hmm. like those movies and those like dominated the horror genre up until the late 70s when the slasher films came yes yes so people's tastes shifted. Audiences wanted more of that and not, you know, the classic stuff. Yes. Like we get in Fright Night. So that brings us to Peter Vincent.
1: Yes. First of all, his name. No, oh, yeah. It's a mashup between Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, who are two kind of titans of that uh, Hammer film era, Yep. both playing vampire killers. And then they actually do a nod to this kind of shifting trend in horror uh, where, um, Charlie goes to the TV station uh, to meet with the actor, um, Peter Vincent. Right. He fought vampires. Yeah. He will help me. Yeah. And originally, Peter Vincent keeps it polite. He thinks Charlie's out for an autograph. When Charlie asks him if he believes in vampires, he plays along and says yes. And then Charlie makes it clear that he has a vampire problem. But then Peter Vincent, he basically drops the charade and says, you know, I've just been fired. And it's because teenagers are not interested in vampire shows anymore. They are interested in people with ski masks slashing apart young virgins. Yep, Which yeah. that was a one-two punch against um, Friday the 13th. <laughs> a little bit of a dig at those types of movies. <laughs> yeah. But then we learned that this actor isn't this kind of legend that Charlie thinks he is. Right. Uh, really... He was this actor that had a few good roles back in the day, but then was kind of stuck in that. And he's been rehashing that for the past 15 years with this uh,
3: TV show syndication. And that he's, you know, dropped off into irrelevance. Yeah. He became sort of like an Elvira character. Yeah. Or even if you're from the Chicagoland area, Sfingooly. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like he's on public access showing these old um, horror movies and he's living the character as himself yes and that's basically all that he has left that's actually my favorite scene mm-hmm. in the movie so he goes up to peter vince and he's like oh i need your help and he's like oh yeah i fought vampires before <laughs> yeah and very quickly he realizes oh this guy is crazy yeah like, no i don't believe in <laughs> vampires please leave me alone he like rushes to his car and yeah. drives off rolls up the window yeah so then after that They try to enlist the help of Peter Vincent. Yes. And he's very reluctant. He doesn't want to help. They try to convince Peter Vincent like, hey.
2: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Please do this for our friend because he's losing his mind. Like, show him that vampires are not real. Right. Because Charlie will believe Peter. Yeah. You know, this will help him
1: just kind of settle things down. And Amy sweeten the pot. With a $500 savings bond that she had. And as soon as he heard that money was involved, he changed his tune. He's like, oh, because <laughs> you know he's <laughs> being evicted from his house. Yeah. He has no job. He needs to travel for more work. And so Amy sweetens the pot and he's like, oh, okay, I'm in, whatever you want. And I really like that aspect of his character of this, not only a reluctant hero, but a coward. And it's all show, he's essentially a charlatan. Yeah. But as we'll see later, he kind of develops into this hero uh, who helps charlie to save the day
3: yeah you have to like think about it from his point of view it's like he's just an actor he's yeah. playing a role and i think we're all victim to that as fans of like media mm-hmm. it's like you see the actor as the character yes like they kind of embody their most famous role and you kind of like see them as that person yeah and that's got to
1: be incredibly restricting to them because as an actor you're meant for many roles And you kind of dream of that where you can have this wide range of expression and become many different characters. But when, for career reasons or otherwise, you're kind of trapped into this one particular role, that can be really demoralizing because you do want to move on into other things, but the world kind of won't let you. And Peter Cushing and Vincent Price were... Fortunate enough in that they were so gifted as actors and so skilled that they were able to transcend any kind of individual role and become legends unto themselves. But unfortunately, Peter Vincent was not that.
3: He was kind of trapped as the vampire killer. Yeah. And what's interesting with Peter Vincent's character, I feel like he is the heart of the whole movie. Because yes. like Tom Holland, when he was writing Fright Night, he was like, something's missing. Mm-hmm. Like he was just you know focusing in on the teenagers. Like something's missing. And then he developed the character for Peter Vincent, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, this washed up actor, like you described. And he's like typecast into this vampire hunter. So once he introduced that character into the story, it all made sense. And I feel like the story of Fright Night really gets going once they introduce the character of Peter Vincent. Yes. So then after Peter Vincent gets, you know, the money promised by Amy, they go to Jerry's house. Yes. So they enter his house, Peter Vincent's there, and he has like his briefcase full of like steaks and holy water and crosses. So he's definitely putting on the show. Mm-hmm. The plan is to make
1: Jerry drink holy water and to prove that he's not a vampire, because if a vampire drank holy water, it would burn him from the inside out, and he would never agree to do such a thing. But what Charlie doesn't know is that Peter Vincent has brought along just plain old tap water and passing it off as holy water. And so... As part of this test, uh, he meets Jerry, thinks he's a pretty swell guy, and he swears that you know he brought the holy water to such and such church and such and such priest, uh, blessed it, saw it myself, and we all know it's a show. Yep. It's fake.
3: But you know what's funny? is like the subtleties in the acting from um, Chris Sarandon. Yes. is like, oh, are you sure this isn't holy water? Like, he's a little, <laughs> like, guarded, like, okay, let me drink it, because... You know, he's actually a vampire he doesn't want to get burned right and so he drinks it and he's like oh see and charlie is not convinced because he knows the truth because he saw you know the long fingernails mm-hmm. the fangs the people winding up missing the coffin like he knows he's a vampire yes but when he needs his friends to be there for him he's not able to prove it to
1: them but we do get this moment of clarity uh when Peter Vincent, he has brought along this little kind of hand mirror that earlier he was explaining to Amy and Ed that this is the prop that was used in Orgy Orgy of the the Damned. Damned. Yes, that was used to reveal a vampire in that episode. And just kind of casually he pulls it out and takes a look at it
3: and looking behind him, he can't see Jerry in the reflection. So Peter Vincent freaks out because then he realizes, oh this is real yeah and he doesn't
1: want to believe it himself he tries to take off but Charlie's like he knows something's going on he's like what did you see and Peter Vincent is forced to come to terms with reality that yeah this is an actual vampire and even still Peter Vincent is reluctant to help he wants to just take off and pretend like nothing ever happened and Amy's freaking out Charlie's freaking out Ed's freaking out and they they decide that they're gonna at least walk Amy home Make sure that she's safe. Yeah. And so Ed decides to, he's still skeptical at this point of the vampire thing. So he decides he's going to cut down an alley to get home. And it's the most telegraphed attack possible in film. But Jerry is following them home. He's flying around as a bat and manages to trap Ed in an alley. And it's very peculiar the way he does it. He doesn't just straight up attack him. He instead beckons him to join him. And he makes the point that I know what it's like to be an outsider, to be misunderstood. And he appeals to Ed in that way. And that works. He manages to get Ed to join him. And Jerry is wearing this trench coat and he draws him in like a modern version of a vampire's cape. And. That's another one of those moments where very much feels like a child predator, where he's using every tactic he can to appeal to a potential victim in order to draw him in. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's that feeling of not belonging and offering that to Ed, and it works. Right. And I thought for sure that, you know, this is when Ed was going to bite it, no pun intended. (laughs) Yeah. And he's instead seduced by Jerry. Because ultimately a vampire wants to seduce its victims. So at this point, we go back to Charlie and Amy. Charlie is walking Amy home, and they need to go through the downtown area, and they keep seeing Jerry kind of pop up impossibly in front of them. Teleporting. Yes. And so to escape, Charlie and Amy head into this nightclub where the music is bopping, and they take this time to just kind of hide they figure Jerry can't get them in public and they use a pay phone to try to call the police. They don't believe them. Of course, common theme in Tom Holland films, same thing <laughs> happened all the time in Child's Play, just people not being believed in the prospect of supernatural things happening. Mm-hmm. And so then they call Peter Vincent and tell him what's going on. And while this is happening, Jerry shows up in the club. He has a change of outfit. He's, you know, in this hip 80s nightclub attire. Yeah. And this is great scene. It's probably my second favorite scene in this movie where Charlie is on the phone trying to call Peter Vincent. Amy kind of steps away for a second and she sees Jerry in the crowd moving back and forth. He's almost moving like a shark, just like as a predator through the sea of people. He's got eye contact on Amy the whole time and draws her in and starts dancing with her and it's very sexually suggestive. Very, and you have to remember that she's underage at this point So, oh yeah
3: she's a high school and he's potentially hundreds of years old yeah
1: it's very creepy but it goes back to my earlier point that he appeals to Ed by saying like he's an outsider just like him join me and you know we can understand each other in this case as we said before Amy she is on the cusp of womanhood she's ready to move into the sexual arena as mm-hmm. it were and Jerry somehow knows this and Really appeals to that side of her where he's basically saying, I'm going to make you a woman. Very creepy. Very well done. And she is seduced by him and starts dancing with him in the club. Mm -hmm. Then glances at the mirror and notices that she's dancing with nobody. Yeah. He has no reflection. And that's kind of when she snaps back to reality. Charlie tries to get her to leave. He had tried previously tried to throw a punch at the guy, and Jerry just catches it and nearly breaks his hand. And and that, too, is like a very hyper-masculine kind of archetype. He's going to steal your girl and shame you or make you look foolish oh, yeah. and incompetent
3: at the same time. So what happens at the end of this scene is Amy is seduced, glamored, if you will, mm-hmm. by Jerry. And so Jerry takes her home and starts the transformation process of becoming a vampirist. And this is my third favorite scene. It is a sexual scene. They don't actually have
1: sex, but he approaches her shirtless. She is dressed in this very revealing nightgown and he unclasps it and exposes her and then very slowly and gradually kisses her, bites her on the neck and you see like this blood kind of drip down. And not to get too graphic, but that is suggestive of a typical first time sexual experience where Mm -hmm. for a woman it's not uncommon to bleed during the first time. And she also makes these suggestive moans during the scene. And it's, in my mind, it's supposed to be symbolic of her first orgasm.
3: Wow. I did not interpret that like that at all, (laughs) but like, it totally
1: makes sense. That's one of the reasons why I love this film so much is that it respects that vampire mythos where That's really what that's kind of representing. It doesn't just scream out and make it obvious, but it uses that symbolism to communicate that. And that's really where the writing in this film, I think, shines. And to support that, after the scene, after she's transitioned into a vampire, we do see her and she looks a lot more womanly. Her cleavage is more prominent. Her hair is let down. She doesn't look like a girl next door anymore. Or like this kind of tomboyish look that she had earlier. She looks much more feminine. And this kind of first night with Jerry is kind of her sexual initiation into womanhood. Maybe not literally, but symbolically.
3: So let's get into like the final scenes of the movie. Yes. So Charlie and Peter Vincent need to fight the monster. Yes. The stakes are set. No pun intended. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, anyways, so they raise their stakes. Yes. <laughs> and they go marching towards uh, the house of Jerry. So, what <laughs> happens is Peter Vincent refuses the call at first. Like, he's a coward. Yeah. He's all facade. So, he reluctantly says yes. He's like, okay. Like, all right. Like, I'm Peter Vincent, the vampire hunter. Like, he's like saying it to himself as a mantra. Yeah. To get himself psyched. Like, okay, I could do this. I could do this. So, they go to the house. They see... um Jerry in full vampire mode. Yes. And they try to fight him off like they hold up the cross. Well, Peter Vincent holds it up. And Jerry laughs it off and says, you have to fully
1: believe in that for that to work. And that's a repeated line in the movie. And I really think it speaks to Peter's character is that, again, he's a charlatan. He's a facade. He doesn't really believe in what he's doing. And it's all just surface level for him. Yeah but he's trying, Mm -hmm. he's trying to get to that point where he is in fact a
3: bona fide vampire killer. Yeah, so they try to fight Jerry and at first it's unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Like um, Charlie gets thrown off the stairway banisters and Peter Vincent's like, forget this, I'm leaving. He
1: goes to Charlie's house, the house of Mrs. Brewster, which is of course next door. Mm -hmm. And he's looking for Mrs. Brewster and instead he finds Ed. And Ed essentially turns into a dog or a wolf, <laughs> wolf, starts charging him. Uh-huh. And Peter, who had fallen onto a piece of furniture, improvises a weapon and it stabs it through the heart of Ed. And you have this very drawn out death scene where the dog werewolf creature kind of slowly forms and morphs back into Ed as he slowly dies.
3: Yeah, fantastic special effects. Too. Oh,
1: yes. If you are a fan of practical effects like that, this
3: this movie is right up there. It's excellent, excellent effects. Yeah. And at that moment, he, he knew. He was like, okay, I can do this. Yes. I can be a vampire hunter. So then he marches back to Jerry's house. Mm-hmm. So the end of the movie is uh, they fight Jerry. And they have to kill him uh, before dawn in order to save Amy. Because in the background, you see the sun is coming up.
1: There's Mm -hmm. a ticking clock. Speaking of ticking clocks, Uh they have a whole room full of ticking clocks. Right. And so when the sun comes up it's 6 a.m. and all the clocks,
3: they just sound like these ominous bells of uh, inevitability. Like for whom the bell tolls. Mm -hmm. The inevitability of your death is approaching. Yes. Time's up. So, they fight Jerry. He retreats to the basements along with his vampire bride, which Mm -hmm. is Amy. So, they fight Jerry, and they defeat him by the sun. Yes.
1: So, previously, we've seen Billy and Jerry basically painting all the windows black. Yeah. We don't know why. Uh, We do know at that point that they're vampires, but it just looks like an odd behavior. But it's a setup for later because it's in the basement that they're able to block out all the light. Charlie and... Peter discover this, that, you know, they're throwing things around in, in battle and something gets tossed through a window and a beam of light shines through. Yeah. So then they start breaking as many windows as possible and essentially light Jerry up.
3: Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> so he turns into this creature in his final moments and he blows up. Yeah. Right in time. And they save Amy. Yeah. She's cured as a result. And then we go
1: to, like, three months later or whatever, there's a renewed interest in vampires because of the events of that night. And Peter Vincent gets his job back as the vampire killer on Fright Night. But then he introduces a new foe to go against. Yes. Aliens. Yes. We learn that he's willing to move into new territory at that point. He's willing to take on new roles and be flexible and not just think of himself as this one role that he had years and years ago that he stuck with. Yeah. We have indications of a bit of growth from, for Peter Vincent. Yeah.
3: It's such a great ending to his character arc Mm -hmm. where he learns that he needs to change. Yes. Like times are changing and so must he. Yes. Absolutely. He definitely embodies that with showing different films besides his own or vampire movies. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Yeah. And much like the first scene, the movie ends in Charlie's bedroom.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, Charlie and Amy, they're making out on the bed now. It's clear that they are much more physically comfortable with themselves, safe to assume that they've fully moved into this sexual relationship. But there is a bit of a hanging thread as they're making out. uh, Charlie notices across the way the house next door. He briefly glimpses a pair of red glowing eyes but he passes it off as just his imagination and as it turns out it is uh, evil ed yeah he didn't fully die it appears so and he's squatting in the house next door
3: and then we roll credits yep like every good horror movie there's one
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: One little scare at the end. Yeah. It's like, oh, the horror is not quite over yet. Yes, absolutely. So why would you recommend Fright Night? We just don't really
1: get well-written movies that much anymore. And that's what really appealed to me about this movie is there's just the idea of subtext that there's things going on that are plainly obvious. And that's the text of the movie. But then there's a lot of things under the surface that are implied or that you have to read between the lines to see yeah. that's the subtext. And you just get the sense that there are these characters that have a history to them, that they have conflicting motivations for different things. And no, it's not the mo- most well-written movie Out there, compared to our modern movie-going sensibilities, it's very predictable in a lot of senses. There's not these like great twists to the story. You're not going to be that surprised. Just in this day and age, seeing things set up in the beginning of the movie and then paid off at the end. It's just a no bullshit, just cool shit kind (laughs) of kind of story. And the practical effects are wonderful. There's some. Pretty good shots in the movie, nothing like a Spielberg movie where it's like, look at me, I'm the DP, all on the screen. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a very well-crafted, well-executed movie that really I'm surprised I haven't heard about before this. So in that kind of sense, it is a hidden gem and underappreciated. And I don't know if I would recommend it to your average movie-going audience today, but if you're listening to a podcast about movies, you are probably an enthusiast. (laughs) And so for the more enthusiasts who want to see a well-crafted, well-directed, well-written movie that is respecting to the audience and has more going on if you are willing to kind of
3: dig for it i would recommend fright night i couldn't have said it better myself and then for me the reason why i would recommend it is this is almost a movie for anybody yes whether you're like new to horror like this is a good introduction to like the genre Mm. because it's not too scary it's a little bit cheesy yeah a little bit weird a little bit cheesy and it's overall it's a fun experience and for those who are like diehard horror fans You'll see this as like a love letter to like the classic movies. Yes. And that's embodied with the overall villain, which is a classic vampire. And then the protagonist, one of them is uh, Peter Vincent, which is pretty much Van Helsing. But that's it for this time on Syndicates. We've been talking about Fright Nights by Tom Holland. Please check it out where it is available. Us at Syndicate, hope you enjoyed yourself. I'd like to thank my guest, Aaron, for coming on the show. You can find Aaron on wstr galactic public access and if you like to keep the conversation going please add us at syndicates on your favorite social media platform that's c-i-n-e-d-i-c-a-t-e syndicates if you have any questions about the program or even media that we recommend please reach out at info or visit the website syndicate.com until next time stop that scroll and spend more time watching see ya